What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Call Your Landry is a filmmaker, podcaster, speaker, and victim advocate living in Santa Monica, California. His documentary, A Murder in Mansfield, is a poignant tale of the slaying of his mother and the resulting trauma that followed. What came next in Collier's journey and healing was largely driven by Noreen's memory, as well as Collier's own mission to inspire others that have dealt with similar loss. Much of Collier's work centers around moving past murder and strengthening our narratives after trauma. It's interesting when you go back and you make a movie about your life. You interview all these people, and I got to learn really wonderful things about my mother. She's like my best friend. I'm her constant companion. She's always in my life, and she's always there pushing me to be the best that I could be and excel in school and the arts and be a good person. But I never knew the impact that my mother had on others. It's across the board where they say, Collier, one of the amazing things about your mother is she treated everyone the same. She didn't make anyone feel like they were beneath her. She was so generous. My mother always stressed to me how fortunate I was to have a roof over my head, to have a family that loved me, to have food on the table, to have all these things that a lot of people often take for granted. One of the most vivid memories that I have of my mother's overall kindness is every year for Christmas, we would donate to Toys for Tots. And my mother would say, Collier, you have to give away half your toys. And it wasn't just like I could get away with, I don't like these ones, I'm gonna give these away. She was already hip to that game. I would have to give away the ones that she knew I really liked. She wanted for it to be something that was a sacrifice. And that is something that she instilled in me very early on. And it's something that is reverberated back to me. I found out a lot about it when I made the film, but even more so as more people listen to the podcast and reach out to me just on how wonderful she was, even in brief encounters. I remember there's a guy who reached out to me. He had waited on my mother at Brooks Brothers. He's like, I spent a half hour with her. She was one of the kindest, gentlest, most caring people I've ever met in my life. Just in that brief exchange of a half an hour in a store where I'm helping her as the salesman, she was so kind and generous to me, unlike anyone else. That was the lasting impression that my mother had on people. And I try to live my life that way. Those are the things that you don't really realize when you're a kid. You know how your relationship is with her, but you don't necessarily see it as an adult. As I get older, I think about things like legacy and what you're going to leave this earth with. And this is how people remember my mother as a kind, beautiful, gentle soul whose smile could light up a room. On the morning of December 31st, 1989, I woke up to the sound of a scream, and then I heard two loud thuds about 30 to 60 seconds apart. 
Then I heard my father's footsteps walk down the hall. I saw out of my peripheral vision the feet in the doorway. Something told me, don't look up. The feet went away. I went back to sleep. I woke up a few hours later. I ran to my mother's room, looking for my mother and looking for blood on the sheets. My mother was nowhere to be found. The sheets were all a mess. I come downstairs. My father had just taken a shower. He was sitting with a towel wrapped around his waist on the couch. And I said, where is my mother? He didn't respond to me. I said, where is my mother? And he said to me, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And I knew right then at that moment that she was dead or that he had her somewhere at the very least. And I was like, okay, motherfucker, it's game on. He tells me this whole story about them getting in a fight and her throwing her purse. And that must have been what I heard hit the wall and made these loud sounds. I later describe it in court as like a body hitting a wall because that's what it was and what it sounded like. My father says to me, he goes, okay, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. And I thought, we live in like a small town in Ohio. The FBI is not coming here, bro. My grandmother had just come the night before, my father's mother. Her and my mother were really close, almost like mother-daughter. So my father leaves. It was around Christmas time. I had had the Santa Claus Garfield and I stuffed all my mother's friends' phone numbers on a piece of paper up inside this Santa hat in this Garfield. So I went upstairs and I grabbed that list, the cordless phone, and I went into the bathroom and I started calling everyone. I told them what happened. I said, my dad said, don't call the police, you call the police. And they did. Two uniform officers show up in a black and white to the house. My grandmother, she at this point is apoplectic, just irate, yelling at me like, you call the police. I'm telling your father you're going to be in big trouble. I'm like, I didn't call the police. To one of them, I sort of pulled him aside. I said, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him. So these uniform officers left. I never heard anything. Nobody came to the house after that. I contact my mother's friends and I say, well, what happened? Like, what's going on? They said, we filed a missing persons case. I'm like, she's not missing. Something has happened to her or she's dead. Lieutenant David Messmore, he was a detective. He happened to see this missing persons report come across his desk. This is New Year's Eve, 1989. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. He comes to the house. My grandmother, again, apoplectic. There's a cop at the house. She's yelling at me. He's like, I just want to come in and ask you guys a few questions. I grab the door. I'm like, come on in. She's so angry. She storms off. One of the things that I learned from my mother when I was a kid, she would talk about the carousel horses growing up. She would say, you ride around on the carousel horses and you grab the brass ring and you win a prize. So she would always tell me, grab the brass ring in life, call or take every opportunity that's available to you. So my grandmother goes to call my father. And I realized at that moment with me standing there with David Messmore, this is the brass ring. Pull him aside and I say, look, my mother isn't just missing. My mother didn't just storm off. Something's happened to her or she's dead. And I say, give me your card. Gives me his business card and I put it in my pocket. My grandmother comes back. He apologizes for intruding. He leaves. I go to school the next day because our Christmas break is over. I walk into the principal's office. First thing, I give him a card. I say, you need to call this guy. That's when I initiate a conversation with David Messmore in the confines of my school where I'm not around my grandmother or my father and I can talk in complete safety. And I tell David Messmore everything. History of my father's domestic abuse, his proclivity for violence, the way he treated myself and my mother, about his girlfriend, the way that their divorce was going, everything I could think of, I told him. My father was winning the divorce despite the fact that he cheated on my mother and impregnated this woman. This is a man who used to make fun of me when I would cover my eyes in a violent movie or somebody was dying. I didn't want to see it. And he would call me a pussy or a little coward or a little chicken shit or my mother's going to turn me into a faggot. This is the way that he would treat me. This is how abusive he was. That's what I grew up with. So I'm telling David all this. I say, look, I'm going to go home tonight. While my grandmother's downstairs dealing with my little sister, I'm going to run upstairs. I'm going to pull the bookshelves out of the wall, go into the crawl space and see if I can find my mother's body. 
or if I could find her purse, the one purse that she wouldn't leave the home without. And I'm sure he thought I was nuts, but also this intriguing little kid who's like thinking about all this shit. Over the course of the next 24 days, I find more and more clues. I keep having Dave Messmore come back every day to the school or call me on the phone so I could tell him more things because every night I would go home from school and gather more clues. Like when my father came home and he had all these marks on his hands that I hadn't seen. Or when he asked me to rub Ben Gay on his shoulders, which is a muscle relaxer because he was sore claiming he was moving a bunch of boxes at his work. His behavior is getting weird, you know, and I could tell that he's under some sort of duress or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, the screws are tightening on you, motherfucker. It wasn't until my father takes me to his office and we stop at a gas station on our way home. And as soon as I can see him in there walking around, I start rummaging through his car. And in the center console, I find two Polaroid photographs. One is of a house. The second one right behind it is of my father's girlfriend with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that is wrapped in plastic. I go to school the next day. I tell David Messmore about these photographs. Like, I have never seen this house. And it's Sherry, his girlfriend, with her two kids, who I've met many times, in front of a fireplace that is covered in plastic. So to me, it means a new fireplace is probably in this house. That was around mid-January 1990. As I said, his behavior is becoming more and more nervous. I can tell. He says to me, Collier, you know, I have a medical conference in Florida. And I think it would be really fun for you and I to go to this conference together. It's like a father and son trip. Go down to Florida, have a nice little trip, get your mind off everything, spend time together. A couple of things that were red flags right there. I had never been on a trip, just my father and I. And also all of those medical conferences happened in the spring, not in the middle of January. I told Dave Messmore, I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not coming back from Florida. And he realized that. A couple of days after that, I'm woken up early morning by two people standing in my room. They're from Child Protective Services. They're like, you got 20 minutes to pack a bag. We got to get out of here. I said, can I take my dog? They said, no, we'll come back for your dog. Last time I ever saw my dog. And as I'm walking out of the house, incoming are police officers in uniforms, men and women in white lab coats, carrying all kinds of devices. The entire crime lab is tearing apart the entire house looking for my mother's body. It's a scene. That night I had the worst asthma attack of my life. The next morning I went to the hospital for a breathing treatment. After they stabilized me, they told me Tenant Messmore found your mother. A long eternal pause I will never forget. And she was dead. And the first words out of my mouth were that bastard. So my mother's body is found. My father is arrested for her murder. There was only circumstantial evidence against my father. So I testified for the grand jury a couple of days after finding out my mother was dead. And that helped to secure his indictment. This was like the largest criminal trial in central Ohio history. The trial was televised live. When I was testifying in court for two days, it was on every television screen across the state, pretty much. Everyone's watching it. I didn't know this before testifying, but it's a lose-lose, right? I testify. I do what's right. My father goes to prison. My life is over. I don't testify. My father gets off. My life is over. I decided that I was going to do the right thing, no matter the cost. If I testify against my father and he gets off with his high-powered legal team, I am going to live the rest of my life. If I stay alive, under guilt and shame, I'm never going to live this down. I chose to be that advocate and that person for my mother that no one else was going to be. People often watch the documentary or they see the trial footage or they've seen on forensic files and they say, God, you were so good on the witness stand. You were such an articulate young man. You knew so many facts. Like, were you coached? People are always looking for ways to nitpick and poke holes into whatever you say. 
But if I had looked up on that morning of December 31st, 1989 at 3 a.m., it's not that hard to make the hole a little bigger, right? I only get is that like this man could have killed me twice. Wanted to definitely try to the second time to take me to Florida. The fact that a 12-year-old could sit there and memorize some sort of rehearsed script on a witness stand with cameras in front of him being grilled by attorneys is utterly fanciful. The reason why it looks so effortless is because when you tell the truth, it's the easiest thing to remember. So it's so pure it flows. That's why it looks like that, because I'm telling the truth. I was staring my father down. He refused to look at me. I was scared, but I wasn't intimidated. This is what happens when you're the last person in your friend group to get a Nintendo. You got a lot of time to develop these skills. As cheeky as it might sound, I went into action. You think that you're going to get away with taking the one person in my life that I loved more than anything, that loved me more than anything, the one ray of sunshine that I had in my world, you're going to take and you think you're going to get fucking away with that if you think I'm not going to die on this hill because I was prepared for all of it. That's why I stared at him. He wouldn't look at me. This cowardly horror of a human being could not even look at me. I knew he was a liar, but I didn't really understand the depths that his deception and manipulation and his sociopathy and narcissism went. I'm still discovering that to this day. Noreen's body was found on January 25th, 25 days after she went missing. Her husband had killed her and hidden her body in the basement of the new house he had purchased to live in with his pregnant girlfriend. He was sentenced to 21 and a half years in prison on July 6, 1990 for aggravated murder and abuse of a corpse. Collier continued to write back and forth with his father after conviction as part of his own healing process. Collier never stopped hoping he would receive an admission or apology from his father. He kept the letters over the years and dives into a couple in his documentary, A Murder in Mansfield. There are still many that remain unopened, though. Some he reads through live for the first time on his podcast, Moving Past Trauma, formerly known as Moving Past Murder. When I open up these letters, which I have not seen as I'm reading them on the podcast or doing it on TikTok, like I'm entering a whole world of discovery again. It's wild to see and hear. What came next for you after the trial and your father's sentencing? I was abandoned by both sides of my family. My mother's side of my family said to me, we don't want to take you because you look like your father. My father's side of the family was angry with me and basically insinuating that I was putting my father in prison. I ended up being adopted out of foster care after about a year. When I was 11, before the trial, I stayed in the same community that all of this happened in. I would come into a room and people would go, oh, that's the Whispers, stares, glances, looking back and forth. That story always led me into a room. And I didn't want that for me. I wanted to just destroy that narrative. Here's the thing I think I realize I'm the only person who's going to look out for my healing. I'm the only person that's going to be able to take me on this journey. And that's why I was like, okay, this is what you're going to do. This is the conversation that I have with myself. I had anger, but I knew that I could not let my life be marred by anger or selfishness or entitlement because I had friends that were entitled. I grew up on a naval base in Virginia where my father was the doctor at the local naval hospital. And we moved to Mansfield when I was like five. And so we're in this community. There's a lot of doctors, there's a lot of professional people. So I had a lot of friends that I went to school with that came from broken households. 
dad was a doctor, they got divorced and had a girlfriend, whatever the typical story is. I can see how angry and so entitled some of those kids became because, oh, the world owes me something because my dad's a piece of shit. I never behaved like that. And I really wasn't allowed to behave like that either. My adopted parents sure as hell weren't going to let me get away with it. Growing up in the small town that all this happens, you get so much attention, but it's for the wrong reasons, at least in my case it was. You get to this point where people are just fascinated by it, whether it's the schadenfreude of all of it or it's just morbid curiosity. People come up to me like, Walmart, corner me and just start talking to me about it. I decided, I'll just talk to anybody about this. Everybody knows the story anyways. Everybody's watched it. They want to know all these details. I'm like, okay, great. I'll use this as a form of therapy and that'll get me out of the anger. I just didn't want to let it ruin me because I knew that that was the only thing it was going to do. It wasn't going to bring my mother back. It wasn't going to change anything. It was just going to ruin me and tarnish a legacy for my mother and taint anything that could have been possible. I was like, I am going to do something with this story because I'll be damned if this is where it ends. Because that's not what my mother would want. I decided to move to Los Angeles for a couple of reasons. One is, if anyone has ever lived in the Midwest, you know how bad the weather sucks. <laughs> so I was in the mood for some palm trees and sunshine, but also like, I'm going to move to a place where no one knows who the fuck I am and I can create my own narrative. I get to reinvent myself in a way that no one will know. Honestly, a handful of people knew. Girlfriends over the years, some best friends knew like details outside of when Collier was a kid, his dad murdered his mom, his dad was a doctor, he's from Ohio. That's all everybody ever really knew. I decided, okay, I'll move to LA and I'll become a rock star. I'll become super famous and then I'll have a platform to share my story and help people. Or I'll become a filmmaker, I'll have a platform to share my story and I'll help people. And that's what ended up happening. I did a TED talk about this. The way that I coped with all of this was through art. I started learning the craft of filmmaking over the years. Flash forward almost a decade later, John Morrissey and I became friends. He was looking for a project a few years later. He had seen that I was really learning the craft of filmmaking and honing my skills. I said, I want to do a docu-series about the consequences of violence in America. The best news is I have the rights to the pilot. I gave him a blue book of newspaper scraps of the moment my mother went missing to when my father got convicted, his appeals and all this shit. He read it and he called me the next day and he goes, holy shit, man, this is your life? Are you fucking kidding me? I know somebody that would probably be really interested in this. Her name is Barbara Koppel and she's won two Oscars for documentaries. That's where it all started. That was like 2009, 2010. We started putting that whole process together. It was supposed to be like a one-hour special for TV and a pilot for this series, and it ended up becoming a full-on documentary directed by Barbara Koppel. And I was originally supposed to shoot it. I was not even really supposed to be in it. The surprise at the end was like, by the way, the guy is shooting the whole thing. It's actually about his life, and here he is. One of those big reveals at the end. But then it just became way more organic to have me in front of the camera. When I made the film, I gave everyone the opportunity. My half-sister was going to be in it, but then she decided to at the last minute pull out. I gave everybody a chance to be a part of the project. I was like, this is your opportunity to share your side of the story before people make assumptions. And this gives you a chance to also control the narrative. My father was under the impression that I was making a film to help him get out of prison. I never told him this, but I never did not tell him this. I just played along with it because I'm a filmmaker and I want to tell the story and I want my father's cooperation. I knew that I would take my father's cooperation along with the Department of Corrections to make this happen. So he was very proactive in helping me make sure that we got into the prison to film. The Department of Prison said, no, we're not going to allow you. Talked to the Department of Corrections and I gave them this pitch, which I need to listen to for motivation because it was the best pitch meeting I've ever given in my life. 
I was like, look, I sit down with my father, the prodigal son returns. It's the largest case in Ohio history. And what if we have this moment where father and son come together? He's able to apologize. We move on into this chapter of healing. It makes everyone look good. And they bought it. I honestly believed it when I was telling them that this could happen. I really wanted that to happen. It was probably the greatest experience of my life because it ended up being a way to sort of come full circle with the trauma, come full circle with what happened and have a moment where you can just go, now I can move on. I can actually get on with my life because everything leading up until that moment that my father comes in the room, everything in my life led to that exact moment. That moment where I could sit down with this man and finally say, why dad? Why did you do this? A lot of people are wondering, like, is that the first time you saw your father? I had seen my father at least a hundred times in prison before that. I cultivated a whole thing over the years. The prison he's in, Marion Correctional Institution, which is one of the most progressive prisons in the world, at least certainly in the United States, with all the programs they have for inmates, they had a visual audio production facility there. And they would do all the videos for the state of Ohio. I made friends with the guy who ran the program out of Ohio State University. I would go into the prison and help teach them filmmaking because I wanted to get in there and film. This is not checkers, it's chess. When you watch the film, my father comes into the room and sits down. He has a smile on his face. He's in a really good mood. And I say, you know, one of the things I've always wondered ever since you murdered my mother, as soon as I say that line to him, his whole demeanor changes. All the air gets sucked out of the fucking room. It's a doozy. My life is a fucking movie. For anyone who has not watched it yet, could you please describe that day you confronted your father? When we were talking about going into that day, I said, we're getting up at 3.30 in the morning. We're going to go to the prison at 5 o'clock. I'm going to drop you guys off and I'm going to go fuck off to a Starbucks for however long it takes for you guys to film everything you need to film. Then you're going to call me. I'm going to come back. And then we're going to do all the stuff with me. Then we're going to do the sit down interview with him. And then that's it. Because two things could happen. One is they could cut us off and kick us out. Two is my father can literally say, I don't want to have this conversation, get up and walk out the room. And then you have nothing. So we're going to do all that stuff ahead. What happens is it's not gotcha journalism. It's not coming in with a vendetta. I'm trying to answer a question that has haunted me my entire life. Why did you murder my mother? I sit there and then I get frustrated with him because hidden behind the layers of self-protection and narcissism, he just is incapable. I realize in that moment that I'll never get what I want from this man or what I'm expecting. At the end of the day, by him telling me nothing, he tells me everything. I do get the answer. And it was way more effective than if it had been, oh, I killed her and this is why. Then it would have led to more questions. The thing is, I give him an opportunity, and that's all I could give. Even 26 years later, I gave him every opportunity to do that, and he didn't take it. As we mentioned before, the documentary reveals that you wrote letters to your father throughout your youth, and the last time you saw your dad was that day, filming. Which was harder, though, carrying on that relationship over the years or ending it? Oh, it was harder to end it, 100%. It's heartbreaking. I just finished up a documentary that's headed to Toronto, and it's about this conflict that a friend of mine has with her father. They have this moment, we're putting in the credits, and she hugs her father. And it hit me. My father's 79 now. That is probably the last time that I'll ever see him. And so you ask about, like, what is harder? It's most certainly that. I was a kid 
who grew up without his father and his mother and who really just wanted his father's approval because as horrible as he is, he's still my father. One of the things that I am so grateful for and definitely a testament to my mother is I learned very early on to not hate my father because I knew how fucking counterproductive it was. I knew that it was going to make me grow up to be an angry and bitter person and I didn't want that because that's not going to bring my mother back. That's not going to change my life. It's just going to make it worse. And it's really hard for a lot of people to reconcile that because they're like, I would have gotten up. I would have said, fuck you, man. How do you sit there and take that from him? And I'm like, what good does that do if I get up and I get angry and leave? I mean, look, I was angry. When I went to the trial, I was angry. Of course, I am a human being. In the end, is there anything you would change about your documentary or perhaps even the true crime docu-series industry in general? The thing is, I set out to tell a story about what happened to me, what happened to my mother. I wanted to connect with people who have been through similar circumstances and give them a narrative voice. But I also wanted to really connect with that kid who was me, who was in foster care, who's basically staring at the nadir of their life. And I think that I was very fortunate to be able to control my narrative from Jump Street. There are many, many survivors that do not get that opportunity. And it's not about monetizing it because these programs, these podcasts, television shows, series, documentaries, whatever, nobody makes a documentary expecting to make any money. Let's just get that right out the way. But some of these shows, they generate so much money that you got to kind of go, well, where, where do you draw the line on the ethics? A lot of times victim stories are exploited. People are like, well, it's the right of free press. I'm like, yeah, but you don't think about the consequences because every time my documentary plays, people reach out to me. Every time the podcast airs, people reach out to me. Every time they hear an interview, people reach out to me with questions. I have put myself out in the public space to deal with that. I have put myself in that situation as a victim survivor, as someone who took the reins of their story. And I am very fortunate to have that happen. But if you think about people that don't want that, aren't putting themselves in the spotlight, and then to be thrust into the spotlight because of what happened, they are forced to deal with that and put up with the constant harassment, the emails, because consumers are consumers, whether it's fast fashion or true crime, people become voracious with it. I don't think they have malintent, but then when somebody hears about the story, then they start reaching out like, oh, let me find her on Facebook, oh, let me find her on Twitter. And like some people just want to be left the fuck alone. It's traumatic for them, and now they've made a television show about it. They don't want to talk about it with people. I like to share this information, but I've been doing that since I was 11 years old. That's been part of my process. I just thought that's what was going to suit me. I think it's very empowering, and it enables people to be giving a voice to the voiceless or those that can't speak up. You're also training the eye on subject matter that is often overlooked, like missing persons cases. Now with a more distant perspective. What is one thing you've learned from your life experience that you feel is vital for everyone to know, no matter their life experience? I think definitely being proactive with myself, telling my story, that is amazingly cathartic. I am very cognizant of how I manage my time and taking care of myself, being healthy, taking time for myself to do the things that I really love. And when I get out of that balance, I get a little funky. I just have to be really cautious of all those things. I like to have space and time for myself to do the things that I love. Finding that delicate balance when you're a trauma survivor, I think is super key. It's what keeps you even keel. I think being really conscious of what you put in your body. And that also includes like what you consume visually and entertainment wise. 
I don't listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I listen to my friends' stuff, but I try not to consume a lot of things. I also think I try to keep a really delicate balance of being very conscientious on how I approach not only certain people, but situations in life. That was perfectly put. What can our listeners look forward to next from you, Collier? Well, I do my podcast, Moving Past Murder. I'm in the process of getting a book together. I am doing another podcast with Tara Newell called Survivor Squad, where we talk to other survivors and let them tell their stories in their own words, and then sort of banter with them as co-survivors. I'm developing a one-man show, which I always wanted to do since I came to LA, talking to audiences and doing like a live podcasting situation, which is very popular right now. I think doing these things where people can engage with you one-on-one or in an audience setting was super cool. It's a really great way to connect with people and raise awareness for things, but also humanize your audiences and just come together in a really nice way. And I really want to share those experiences. That's like the big goal for 2023 for me is to get out there and do that. Last but not least, where can people find you if they'd like to reach out or follow your journey in the future? You can find me at my website, which is www.collierlandry.com. You can find me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, all at Collier Landry, Facebook. But I mostly am on like TikTok and Instagram. I do Instagram Lives every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find Moving Past Murder on all podcast platforms and YouTube. My YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. Thank you so much, Collier. We appreciate you making time for us and for continuously working to advocate for murder co-victims and domestic violence victims like ourselves. Noreen Boyle's murderer was denied parole for a second time in September of 2020. As of now, he remains eligible for parole again in October of 2025. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, 47,000 women and girls worldwide were killed by their intimate partners or other family members in 2020. This means that on average, a woman or girl is killed by someone in her own family every 11 minutes. Over the last 10 years, European rates of intimate partner violence-related homicides have declined on average by 13% while in America it has risen by 9%. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence states that 23.2% of women and 13.9% of men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. From 2016 to 2018 specifically, the number of intimate partner violence victimizations in the United States increased 42%. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse or violence, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of tools and organizations that can help. You are not alone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I am navigating the world in a different way now. When I stepped out of that courthouse, I knew my life had changed. I felt instantly lighter. It's a feeling I can't even explain. To know that I would never have to see his face again if I don't want to. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.